Welcome to episode 13 of Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Berlundblad, and with me, Richard Allen. There we go. And uh, since it's episode 13, we have to state that it's a complete coincidence that we're going to talk about taxes. And we're not going to touch on death at all, even though death and taxes are the only certain things in this world. So tax is a fascinating subject in many ways. There, there are those who, who are lured into thinking that it's technical or boring, but tax is ultimately, at the heart of it, an ethical question, isn't it? I mean, wh- why do we pay tax? Yeah. If you were just to boil it down to the simplest fact, why do we pay tax? I, I mean, I think it's very symbolic of whether or not you're making a contribution to society as a whole, as opposed to simply looking after your own. Um, and so it's really interesting, actually, in the corporate tax world, the focus is very much on corporate income tax. Uh, and so there's a whole range of different taxes that people pay, businesses and, and individuals. We pay you know, sales taxes on stuff we buy. Uh, corporations will will raise sales tax or they'll generate sales tax by their activity. They'll they'll pay taxes to local authorities for their premises and things. But at the heart of it is there's this idea of if you've made money, if you've been lucky uh, or worked hard and or been lucky Diligent, and made some money, yes, yes then a, a certain percentage of the money that you make, whether you're an individual or a corporation, should go into this big central pot, government, in order then to pay for services. And of course, across the political divide, there are different views. And this is a classic left-right issue. I think, broadly speaking, those at the left end of the spectrum would say, you know, the more that you pay into that central pot, the happier and better off society will be. And those at the right may say, well, you know, some taxation is okay, but they worry that government will waste the money that's put into the centre. So there's definitely a divide. But broadly speaking, I think most people, whichever political background they come from, will say, look, if you've made money, then it's fair and reasonable that those who have made more money should make a greater contribution to the public pot that will pay for the things that we all need uh, than those who have made less money. Um, and that's we, really where people focus. And we, I think we need to tease something out here. We'll, we'll stay in Europe for a while and discuss the European conception of tax and then contrast that a bit with the US, I think. But, but there is something here also, not just about the sum of the money, not so if you say that you make a lot of money and you owe 100 million in taxes it's not okay for you to then say i will use these 100 million and i will build two schools for them because there is something here about the subjugation of the corporation under the authority of the collective state there's there's a there is something about power here too, isn't there? That's right. There's a difference between sort of charity and tax. <laughs> and uh, um, in, in a sense, and I think you're right, this may be one of the dividing lines to a certain extent between Europe and the US, that in, in, in Europe, there's a very strong sense that charity is good, but it's not in any way a substitute for paying into the central pot, where where the way in which the money is spent is then divide, decided by democratically elected politicians uh, who may have an agenda that you disagree with. So you can't just fund the stuff you like. You, you, you put the money in the pot, and then the country as a whole decides how that money gets spent. Charity, on the other hand, again, very good, potentially very socially beneficial, but there's still a sense that that's really you deciding how you want to spend the money. Uh, you decide whether you're going to give it to schools or hospitals or whatever it is that you, you would favor as a individual or as a company. Um, And yes, that's a good thing, but it is not a substitute for paying into a central pot and then having 
government decide where that money should go, whether or not you as an individual, you know, think that's a good thing or not. And I think in the US, actually, by contrast, there is a much stronger sense, and this is reflected in the US tax system, where I think there are a lot, lot, lot more. There's a lot more scope for people to. Um, uh, I wouldn't use the word avoid, but not not be as liable for taxes if they give money away. So there are, there are, there's more opportunity for you to endow a museum, and, and we've been to the US a lot, and you get these like sort of massive array of odd little museums and things across the United States. And in part, that's because I think they do have a much stronger sense of saying, look, in some senses, charitable giving is more of a substitute for taxation, whereas in Europe. Uh, yes, we like the charitable giving, but but we don't incentivize it. I think to the same degree. I think I think that's right, and I think that in in Europe it's much more about the control over the money than the actual sum of the money, uh, the ability f- to collectively spend it in a way that's as you say democratically legitimate, and not ceasing that prerogative to a single individual who then gets to decide how the money is spent. And it's an interesting difference because, and I think it's often missed in translation uh, when when we discuss this with at least I found this a couple of times when you discuss it with uh, American colleagues because for them. Uh, the contributions, not just the contributions that you would make charitably, but the contributions to the economy overall, where you would grow it, where you would be sort of a net benefit for an economy, would themselves be evidence that you're you're really paying your fair share back. But that didn't count for much with most of most of the sort of stakeholders that you would meet in Europe. They would be much more interested in having the ability to control that money and to sort of having the ability to spend it in a way that they felt was the right way to spend it. Now, this 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 brings us to an sort of interesting position. Tax is easy if you're just taxing the people in your country and you're just taxing within your borders and you're you don't have to care about where anyone is. Then, then taxes is, is, seem somewhat simplistic. <laughs> but if you suddenly have an international globalized world, what is the first thing you run into in terms of a problem when you want to build a tax system that reflects that not everyone is within the borders of a single country? Yeah, so, so I think the, the critical decision is where is the value being created that you are taxing and and you're absolutely right so if if i'm sitting in the uk and uh, i come up with a brilliant idea for a a widget some kind of object that's useful and i can make my widget for 100 pounds and i can sell it for 200 pounds that's 100 pounds worth of profit that has come from my genius that is now eligible for taxation by the british government as long as that activity is all in the uk it's really simple but when I start selling my widget abroad in other countries, actually the, the basic logic of the taxation system is that £100 should still be coming back to Britain uh, to be taxed by the British government. The, the fact that someone's bought it in France or Germany is kind of neither here nor there. The, the genius, the economic value uh, that made all of that profit was the, the, the value of my activity in the United Kingdom. But of course, that starts to become very unsatisfactory for other governments once you know i'm selling enough widgets and potentially displacing the widget makers in their market they start to look at this and go well hang on a minute you know all the profit is flowing back to the united kingdom i'm not able to tax it and i think that's that's sort of where we get to with a lot of these debates is to say you know where where is the economic value being created uh, um and and fair taxation means that the government in the country where the value is being created should get to tax those profits. 
And when it's an international transaction, I say some levels it may be you know pretty straightforward. It's still I've built something. I'm in Britain. Britain still gets the taxes for the stuff I've built. But increasingly, and we'll get into this now as we start looking at the tech sector, there's an argument to say, well, actually, no, some of the genius was British genius, and the British government gets to tax that. But some of the genius was marketing genius in France, or distribution genius in Germany, or some other kind of you know, economic value add. And therefore, instead of all of that £100 of profit being taxed in the UK, we should slice it up. And the UK will get some, but now the other countries want a slice of it as well. And then the critical question is, how do you, like, what's the formula by which you divide up that economic value, that pie, so that everybody feels it's fair? Let's let's also, before we sort of go into the nuance, sketch out the the two versions. You've talked about one of them, which I think is the value creation theory, where you tax um, a company where the value is created, and arguably the value is created where the company is headquartered, where it has its um, the majority of the people working for it, et cetera, et cetera. But then <clears throat> the other model that you refer to and, and sort of sketched out is one that's solely based on where the value is consumed, right? Yes. The idea being that you know, if, if you are a small Finnish company and you have um, created an app with exploding birds, I think yes. that would be a weird thing. Um, and and a lot of the people who buy this app or look at advertising in it are in France. Then that's where the value, according to that theory, is being consumed. And so the consumption should be the basis of taxation, not the creation, in a sense. And so you have these two opposite images. Before we sort of dive into the nuance, it's interesting, I think, to think about what these models um, reward. Because in the first case, if I was the Finnish government and was arguing for the value creation model, where I said the value is created in Finland, I would say, look, we have some of the best schools in the world, according to the PISA investigations. We invest tons in startup ecosystems. We have incubators, accelerators, you name it. We have all of these different innovation system components that we have designed carefully over the decades that have, have passed by. And so the value that's created by this company uh, that has written a game with exploding birds is the collective product of the Finnish society's political prioritizations and political choices. It's just just legitimate that that money should come back to us in Finland and not just be sent away to where it's consumed. Because the only thing you reward with the consumption model, it seems to me, and I'd like to hear if you think that's right, is demographics. A lot of people. Yeah, d- demographics and money. So, so you're right. You just made a very compelling case, I think, for for Finland to uh, retain the tax revenue from, from that exploding bird game. Um, I mean, in a sense... So traditionally, we've ended up, we we have both getting taxed. So we have sales taxes. So, you know, all of that economic activity is taxed. And again, this is sometimes lost in the debate. But even with the digital companies, when they're selling their advertising products in other countries, if other countries have a sales tax, they're bringing in the revenues, they may be getting 10 or 20% of all of the you know, value of that digital advertising may be come flowing in as a sales tax. But corporate income tax, I think in particular, and this is why it's important to tease them out, but corporate income tax, I think traditionally was very strongly associated with that sort of genius invention creation uh, part of it. And so it's, it is, it's both and. But I think what's been interesting over recent years is government saying, particularly when it comes to the tech sector, and, and again, I think as we have this conversation, we can tease out where we think things are 
peculiar to tech and where they're more generic. But particularly in the context of the tech sector, they're saying, look, sales tax is not enough. Uh, I also want a slice of the corporate income tax. I want a slice of the profits that you're making because I, I and again, people are developing new theories to argue why in the case of a digital company, it, it, all of the genius isn't in the originating or the HQ country, that the genius is shared between the HQ country and the cons- consuming country. There is also, and I think we should <clears throat> recognize that that one doesn't have to be a great cynic to point out that um, value-added tax, for example, or consumption tax hits the electorate, whereas a corporation tax hits a company in another country. So it's easier, in a sense, from a purely political standpoint to not tax your own citizens, but try to tax instead what is often painted as the big corporate, the industry. And so I think that one reason that value-added tax, sales tax, or consumption tax is is not so attractive is is that if that was how you were taxing, say, the exploding birds game, uh, you would be... uh, you would be making everyone who played that game pay an extra tax. And that would be very visible and possibly not politically entirely easy to pull off. But if you're, on the other hand, strong on big corporations and saying they need to pay their fair share, that's there's there's nothing in that that has a downside for a politician. No, I mean, on on the face of it, no. And and certainly, yes, if it's uh, foreign companies that you're trying to take a slice of revenue out of, and and most of the proposals we've seen have been precisely that. In particular, it's been uh, countries outside of the US saying they want a slice of US tech company revenue. Interestingly, none of the governments advocating for that are are arguing that their own domestic companies should have to hand over a slice of their corporate income tax to the American government. Um, And and there was a a sort of row brewing over the last few months where the US government said, I think with some justification, look, if you're going to take a slice of revenue out of our American tech companies, we are going to raise some money from your companies through some other mechanism to compensate for that because we, the US uh, uh, Treasury are going to lose money if you take if you make our companies less profitable. Really interesting. Over the last week, though, we've seen some noises coming out of the new U.S. administration saying, f- for various reasons, that they they do now want to to look again and work with. Uh, all of the major economies through the uh, OECD, uh, the Organization for Economic Cooperation Development, they want to work with other major economies to see if they can come up with some new set of international agreements. And I think that's reflecting the fact that we were risking heading into this sort of tit-for-tat war where governments you know, thought that it would be okay to try and take a slice of, of money, free money, from some foreign company and that this would be at no cost to their own companies. They don't have to give anything up. It's all it's all take, no give. Uh, but reality is, in these things, it's going to have to be give and take. There's going to have to be some kind of structure where you know everybody's treated fairly. And and we have to, and, and, and this is the fun thing about tax that you sort of also have to keep in mind all of the different technicalities. Because as we talk about the value creation theory, where you're taxed, where the value is created, and we talk about what we can call the uh, let's call it the revenue model, where the revenue is generated. So if the revenue is generated in France, you have to pay your taxes where the revenue is, not where the value is created. So value versus revenue. Then then we end up in another interesting and very important distinction that a lot of people tend to miss, and that is between profit and revenue, yes. right? 
Because if you pay tax, you don't regularly in the old system, we wouldn't say that, oh, you made a widget for £100 and you sold it for £200, but then you bought a machine. That means that you essentially lost money this year, so you have an overall loss of £200. We wouldn't tax you for the 100 you made on each widget, but we would say you didn't actually have a profit, so you don't have to pay any tax. But in the new model, the revenue-generated model, would just look at the revenue per widget and say that you need to pay tax per widget, per profit you made there, and we'll isolate that and talk about revenues. So explain to us, how does profit and revenue relate? And and, and what is the right thing to tax, do you think? Uh, I mean, this is one of the areas where I think tech is different. So again, a, a lot of the tax structures that have caused uh, sort of I'd say damage to the reputation of the tech sector. We've both been there and we know how damaging this can be. I mean, mean, some of this is because people scrutinize the tech sector in a way that others are not scrutinized, which would be entirely candid. And again, that's not an excuse for it, but it's just there is a spotlight and a level of scrutiny of large tech companies that I think is quite exceptional. And so there are many kind of tax structures that have been used by other sectors for many, many years that are very similar and have not had the same attention. But but people have focused on tech. Now, within that, some things are different. And I think one of the things that are different is just what you put your finger on, Nicholas, which is a classic sort of tech business model is to run at a loss while you're in your growth phase in the hope of future profits. And so I think it would be exceptional you know, you know, to, to take that example. I mean, you can, you can look at um, companies in the transport sector <laughs> would be one, one example where, you know, that they are spending a hundred pounds to build the widget, and they're selling it for ninety. And they go, they're willing to sell, losing ten pounds on every widget for three, four, five years, based on money they're getting from their investors, in the hope that further down the track, they're going to start to become profitable. And that's very typical in the tech sector. I think more so than in other sectors. Other sectors do invest upfront, but I think that there 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 are very few other kinds of company that are willing to take the pain and in, in, in I think we talked about this before in startup land of people saying you know what's your burn rate in other words <laughs> how much of your investors money are you losing and and so you know this is unusual it's a gamble in a sense by those investors um, they're hoping that they'll be profitable down the track sometimes they will be sometimes they won't now from a government point of view, this is really challenging. So you think about the transport sector. You have a local taxi scene where you know people are running taxis, they're making some profit, they're paying their taxes on the profits they make, you're getting a steady income. Company comes in, starts to run taxi services at a loss. Well, they're not going to pay you any tax. They don't owe you any tax. In fact, they're going to earn tax credits for the losses they make that they will cash in once they start to become profitable. So from a a punter's point of view, things may look very good. You're now getting a cheap taxi service funded in part by these foolish investors who are willing to, to cover the cost of part of your taxi ride. From a government point of view, suddenly you've gone from this sector being a net income to potentially being a loss maker from the government point of view, because you've now got loss making companies. And I think that happens, we see that sort of happening quite often. That That is part of the tech disruption. Someone comes in with very, very low margins and replaces something that was previously high margin. We can again, look at it in the retail sector. You know, somebody comes in willing to do online sales 
at tiny profit margins or no profit margin because they're doing loss leaders, and they're displacing activity that was in a profitable retail sector previously. So this is something which I think is different and and, and causes governments to be very concerned about tech, tech businesses. Uh, and it's precisely because of this, you know, I think entirely sort of the correct notion that you tax a business when it's profitable, and that's the way you encourage entrepreneurship. You know, if you start taxing businesses when they're making a loss, you're basically saying to the investors in the example I gave of, well, you're already making a loss subsidizing our taxi rides. Now we'd also like you to give a slice of your money to the government. Uh, like, doesn't feel like a great incentive for people to to try and develop new products and services. So that, yeah, that's always you been get- the notion. Essentially, no economic change. If if you're completely adverse to any kind of of uh, tax structure change risk, now there, there are two things here. One is a, a very simple sort of public service announcement, and that is whenever you see a company arguing for higher tax rates, check if they're making a profit. That's <laughs> 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 sort of a, just, just the first thing you should do. Any company that argues for for uh, raising tax rates uh, is arguably going to uh, to have to think about how that would impact on their profit and. If they have none, or if they're loss leaders, as you say, uh, that's an easy political give, uh, in a sense. And I think the the other thing that's interesting here is that that this only holds, this only works if the long term plan for, say, the transport sector is to be profitable. And there we hit the snag again, because where is that profit going to be taxed? Is it going to be taxed where the transportation is actually happening, or is it going to be taxed where the brilliant software systems that help you coordinate across drivers and people who want to travel are made? And at that point, you you get a, an additional problem. Not only are you taking a steady tax income base from a country, you are disrupting it. And then when it starts to become profitable again, the profits are essentially not going to stay in the country where they were in the beginning. And then we get something that has sometimes been referred to as BEPS. Yes. That's a that's a fun acronym. Do you want to walk us through what BEPS is? So so it's um the the this base erosion of base profit. So it's it's basically saying that the tax base has been eroded in different countries because they're now they have a, a smaller base of economic activity because just as you describe some of that economic activity is now being associated with other uh, countries. Um or or indeed the the profit has sort of gone somewhere completely uh, offshore from anywhere, and now can't be taxed by anybody. And, and it is interesting that that um, I, mean, there, I think there are sort of two key elements to trying to unpick this. And again, the the Biden administration announcement uh, really zeroes in on one of those. So the first is differentials in taxation rates. Um, and again, let's let's use the sort of like human example because a lot of these things apply to individuals as well. Uh, um, you know, I, I live in the UK. Uh, if I went to do some work in France and I was offered a choice, uh, you can pay the tax on the work you've done in France or in the UK. If the tax rates are the same in both countries, I'll kind of say, well, I don't care. It's fine, like whichever. If there's a huge difference in the tax rates between the two countries, then I'm going to try and find ways naturally, as a, unless I'm a completely saintly human being, uh, legal ways, again, be very clear, I'm going to try and say, well, legally, uh, you know, I want to have as much of the income in the lowest tax rate country that I can have. And that's sort of what companies have done at a, a large scale. So they, they've looked at it, and there was a 
very particular distortion in that the United States, again, so contrary to many people's perceptions of the United States as this business-friendly country, had a very high rate of corporate income tax. So it's like 35%. Um, for domestic, and just for you to understand how high that is, that's actually higher than Sweden. So yes. I just want to put <laughs> that's high. <laughs> and you know, a lot of other countries were bobbling around at the sort of twenty percent rate, but it was thirty-five percent. But for your domestic activity, you often had a lot of things you could credit against the tax. So, so that thirty-five percent was notional. But if you look at the companies that are in the sort of list of the top U.S. companies, you see that many massive companies with huge revenues are actually paying a lot, lot less. But if you were making money around the rest of the world as a U.S. company and you brought the money back to the U.S., you would expect to pay 35% uh, tax on it. Now, if, if somebody came along, an accountant, and said, again, entirely legally, I want to be really clear, I don't, don't think anyone's done anything necessarily illegal here. They said, you can create a structure where we'll keep the profit out of the U.S., um, and you won't have to pay that 35%. It, it's slightly less useful to you because it's sitting somewhere in a bank account somewhere where you can't necessarily sort of uh, deploy it in the way you'd want to, but it's your money, it's on the books. And a lot of the tech company structures that people have been very concerned about were, were built entirely on that basis that there was this huge gap between the 35% you would pay if you brought the money back to the US and rates that you could pay elsewhere in the world. And what the Biden but, administration is suggesting also, is, oh, yeah, is to but, equalize that. Just before before we before we go on to the Biden, I think there there are two things about this that that strike me as very important. One is your your point about legality that these are legal structures, and I think that we 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 should get back to that question because there is the question of what's legal and what's morally defensible when it comes to tax, and it's especially um, I think infected in in the tax discourse, and that's something that I want us to sort of get back to. The the other thing is that. The, the money was not put in, uh, it, well, take a take an example at random, Bermuda, sunny place for shady people, as someone said. Yes. Uh, it was not put in, in uh, offshore in, in a place like that uh, and then not taxed. But the tax was deferred, which exactly. means that at some point you would have to move it back and you would have to tax it, but it was a bet on tax rates going down. That was essentially what sort of underpinned a lot of that model. So it wasn't uh, in the sense that a lot of people say that you're evading tax. What you're evading is present tax, but you know that at some point you're going to have to pay tax on that money when it's repatriated to, for example, the US. So so there's something there about the nuance that also gets lost a lot of time where we tend to think that, oh, if you offshore, you don't have to pay tax at all. But that's not exactly it, is it? No, no it was a bet, and it, and it turned out uh, to be a correct bet, at least from the company's points of view, that, that um, yes, they were parking the money, in a sense, offshore. Again, legally, and just, just to sort of flesh out that example, I, my, my widget company, you know, I'm, I'm selling my widgets that I've made for £100 for £200 around the world. Now, somebody comes along and says, look, I've got a structure where... Uh, either you can keep bringing in that profit from abroad and tax it here, or you can sell for a million pounds the right to make widgets internationally to this company, which will be in somewhere like the Bermuda or Cayman Islands, wherever it's going to be. And that company now sells your widgets around the world. The money doesn't come back to the UK and is therefore not taxable in the UK. It's sitting somewhere offshore. 
Um, but you're right. At the point at which you did decide to bring the money back from Widgets International to local widget company, at that point, you're liable for tax. And that's pretty much what happened with a lot of the tech companies that the Donald Trump administration dramatically reduced the tax rate um, down from that 35%. And in fact, for repatriated international profits, it, it dropped it even further uh, than the, the headline tax rate. So that hugely incentivized companies to say, look, we're going to get all this money that we've been holding offshore. We're going to bring it to the US. We're going to pay US taxes at a much more favorable rate than the you know earlier rate. But they are paid. And now that profit is it is usable. Uh, it sits in the company's coffers. It's all tax paid. It's all legit and reputable. But they were holding that money offshore. And there are some disputes now around, you know, when, when companies created these structures, did they value the license to do the offshore business accurately enough? And of course, that's something that the US administration can contest if they think that's undervalued, because when the companies sell the license, they're liable for tax in the US. And, and that's something I know that's being debated uh, in the US uh, end of things. Um, and again, we still have, though, this other element, which is the non-US countries who feel that you know this arrangement should never have been allowed because this arrangement meant that they were deprived of tax revenue. Oh, but but they never were though because I mean this was future U.S. tax revenue, so the U.S. could say legitimately that they were being bereaved of of tax revenue today, but uh, they would at some future point get it. But I think I mean it's it's it, I think that you can argue you can legitimately argue that there shouldn't be a deferral option like this in the tax system. That is a politically viable opinion and certainly one that you, you can imagine how to construct the, 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 the legal ramifications for it, saying that, no, you, you are not going to be able to make bets like this where you think that tax rates will go down in the future. But nobody has done that. And that's the other point that sort of comes back to your legality point, I think, that these bets were made possible uh, by the legal system such as it was designed. And I think there is a, and, and maybe this is, is a good point to come back to the point about legal tax structures and moral tax structures. Um, because there are a lot of really good, fantastic, I would argue, tax lawyers who understand this enormous complex legal matter and have constructed some validated by tax authorities models that are out there that are quite complex and reflect the complexity sometimes of the underlying organization. But we're increasingly seeing a tension between it's legal and it's moral. How do you think that will dissolve? Yeah, again, I think the, the instinctive um, view is, well, the moral choice would be to pay taxes it in uh, well in the country in which one sits. <laughs> so, so from a British perspective, the moral choice is for companies to be paying taxes in Britain, and from a French perspective, it's for them to be paying taxes in France. From a US perspective, it's for them to be paying taxes in the US. And I think this is where I, I get the instinctive view of well, companies should be paying more taxes. That's the moral choice, but it's not necessarily that simple in the sense that um, uh, if if the if paying taxes in one country is going to effectively deprive another country of what they believe to be their rightful tax take, we have a problem. And that's why I think it brings us all the way back always to saying we need the international agreements. So a company saying, you know, I, I am now, uh, I feel uh, pressured in Europe. And so the moral thing now for me to do is to start paying much, much more tax in Europe. They may then be sending less profit back to the US. 
And the US is going to say, whoa, hang on a minute. You know, that, that may have felt like the right thing to do for Europe, but it's not the right thing to do for the US because we're now losing tax take. And so at the heart of um, the Biden proposal, where I think they're really interesting in a sense, is, is, is a message to say, hey, international community, can we all come up with corporate tax rates that are very similar to each other? Can we get them in the same zone? And, and I think the motivation is a very simple one, which is that the Biden administration plans to uh, take the levels of corporate income tax in the US back to something, not all the way back to where they were, but closer to where they were. And in doing so, they're obviously worried that this will then re-incentivize companies to move taxes to to other jurisdictions or not to bring the, the profits back to the United States. And so what you want is, is some kind of international agreement. And I think that's where you sort of end up, um, I think the legal and the moral choices align. If you get to a place, for example, if, if everyone had a 25% corporate tax rate, uh, then a company could sit back and say, like, you know, I don't care. <laughs> like, you guys just work it out. If you want me to pay 100% of my tax in the US, I'll do that. If you want me to pay 20% in the US and 80% in Europe, I'll do that. It really doesn't matter because I'm going to pay 25% of my profit wherever it is. And so, in a sense, I say that that um, equalization or that reduction of the incentives to, to move things around, I think, is extraordinarily helpful and would help the moral and legal choices align with each other. Um, Before we leave the moral point, and I want us to get to what you've been describing here, which is uh, the question of tax competition, if tax competition should exist or not. Before we leave the moral choice, though, I mean, there's, there's, I, I remember a lot of times when I discussed this with people, and they, they essentially ended up saying, well, why don't you just pay uh, a sort of gratuitous amount of tax, add 5% on whatever you think you owed, and then pay that in and make sure that that sort of shows that you're morally inclined to try to pay your fair share. And I, I, I originally thought it was a good idea because, well, partly being Swedish, <laughs> I think that, you know, that's how tax systems work. But, but then something really interesting was pointed out to me and that is not often considered. And that is that if you were to do that, you would with an almost 100% probability end up with a shareholder lawsuit in the United States because you were paying more tax than was legally required of you, which meant that you were spending the shareholders money in a way that was not legally defensible and essentially stealing from them. So you have a really interesting moral issue here where you're, we have sort of been talking about morals as how much should I pay? But when we talk about who is actually paying, it's this company, but the company in turn is owned by its shareholders. And those shareholders today include pension funds and lots of private individuals, etc. So how do you square that moral dimension with the question of how much tax you pay? Yeah, I mean, and again, I'm I'm with you on this idea of voluntary contribution. Though at one stage when the debate got very heated in the UK, I think it was Starbucks actually sort of uh, as as part of their defensive strategy said, yes, and we're going to make a contribution to the UK uh, taxpayer. We don't think we need to legally, but we're going to do it out of the goodness of our hearts. And there was a terrible backlash just saying, hey, hey, hang on, you know, taxes are not voluntary. Tax is something you have to do. And so I just don't think it's a long-term solution to, to, to end up with this mix and match scheme. And, and again, on the moral point, uh, if we think of our personal taxation situation, um, a lot of these same principles apply there. So I say, if, if you were offered the choice, having earned some money overseas, quite legally and legitimately, you know, as long as you keep it in your overseas bank account, you don't have to pay tax on it back at home. 
to, for you to take that choice is that how how unethical how immoral is it for you to take that choice if it's a you know part of the package and the deal uh, for you taking that employment overseas I, again I, I think some things are unethical actually I, I'm really curious about one aspect of US tax law which is um, the, the fact that essentially you lose your citizenship if you stop paying taxes in the US which, which I find curious as a Brit I mean you know British billionaires do not live in Britain. They all go abroad. They all make their money here and they all move to Monaco or wherever it is and they carry on being British and as long as they stay out of the country for half a year, half of the year, um, it's fine. And those I find really, you know, sort of curious uh, choices where you're, you know, moving out. Um, But I say, as long as people are paying what they're due to pay and all of these american billionaires the jeff bezos's and mark zuckerberg's and people say if they were british they wouldn't live in britain anymore they would have gone um but they all do live in america and they pay their taxes and they pay the amount that they're due to pay under the tax code and their businesses similarly pay the amount they're due to pay under the tax code and i do question you know where why uh, we would be arguing for people going outside of the tax code and making voluntary contributions where you might look at the ethics of a business is to say, look, are they trying to sort out these anomalies and make sure that there is a fair structure? So, so for example, the test might be, do they support publicly and vocally the kind of process that's taking place in the OECD to try and come up with a new international framework? Um, are they trying to get rid of anomalies that are, are potentially unfairly beneficial to them? That is an ethical stance, but are they paying you know extra money that they're not due to pay? Uh, that starts to look a bit like you know uh, and a PR exercise. Uh, we should say it was when when this happened in the UK. It turned out that people treated it as a PR exercise rather than a serious attempt at tax fairness. Yes, and at that point you're actually paying with someone else's money. Uh, a corporation's money is is held by its shareholders ultimately, and those shareholders are then not um, uh, necessarily going to see the wisdom of contributing their funds in a way that goes above and beyond what's legally required. But I, I think that I think there is a there is an interesting question about that and I, I i think another thing that we should just and this is people are going to be very skeptical about this and they're going to be very cynical about it but i think it's true to say that if the tax system was clear-cut and you could get an easy answer to what your fair share was and it was non-discriminatory and it didn't tax you twice and it didn't discriminate against industries or against nationalities then i think almost every single tech company would throw their hands up and say thank god that's really good. We would love to have a predictable system that fulfills those simple requirements. And if that means we pay more tax, 5% up, I think that most tech companies would actually think that was a cheap price to pay, not to get embroiled in these moral discussions about paying your fair share or not. Now, I know a lot of people will be skeptical about this, but don't you, I mean, from, it, it, from my perspective, I think it, that's absolutely yeah, true. It was all downside, all pain. And, and I have to say all the way through, you know the company, and uh, again, carefully say this, but but um, tech companies are in this particular position where, when they're in their growth phase, they're spending other people's money, <laughs> so they're not not necessarily um, uh, too obsessed with that. And then, if they are successful, they're often highly profitable, and so they they can afford, in a sense, to pay the taxes. What they want is that clarity. Um, and again, to get really concrete, if 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 there was a system that said. You know, you build a digital advertising service out of the US, uh, 
you make X amount of profit, 50% of the profit gets to be taxed by the US, US government or whatever the prevailing rate is. 20% of the profit you know, gets to be taxed by whoever does the distribution mechanism. 30% gets taxed in the end consumer's country. Whatever it is, doesn't it, it kind of almost doesn't matter how you want to divide it up, but just come up with a number and, and explain how to divide it up. And then company can get on and organize to pay its taxes according to uh, that formula. The problem we have at the moment is everybody has a different formula. Uh, I, I would say in the sense, and everybody has a different interest. So that, you know, uh, this is why it's a hard negotiation. The, the U, if in that model of a US tech company, the US's interest, frankly, is in having 100% of the profit booked to the US. The interest of a country like France would be in having 100% of the profit booked to France. But France and the US and UK and the US need to get together and say, okay, this is how we're going to divide the profit up for tax purposes between us. And the numbers they come up with should add up to 100, not 150 or 200, but 100% <laughs> at the end of that calculation. And that's what hasn't happened, but potentially may now happen with the conversations that are going to happen through the OECD, and particularly with this new US administration saying they're very open to to this discussion. You you started to hit on this in the beginning when we when we talked about France and the UK and you making your widget, etc. You said you would then look at marketing and see how much marketing added value to to the. Uh, uh, profit that was being taxed. The the mechanism whereby which we do this is sometimes referred to as transfer pricing. And uh, explain a little bit to us about how transfer pricing works today and why it's completely different from what you just described, where the countries essentially would make up the transfer pricing mechanism and the portions um, that would be attributable to every single market. So this is where, you know, again, if, if people read about there being tax raids on companies and, and uh, court cases going on, it's often around this area. That, that there is today a set of conventions uh, uh, agreed amongst tax professionals in particular uh, that say that try and value the different elements of of that. So yes, I've I've made my widget. They will try and value how much is should accrue to the manufacturer of the widget, how much should accrue to the local sales and promotion activities, and they do that by comparison with other businesses in the sector. And they've come up with formula, and the formula might say, for example, we think that the marketing of the of a particular kind of product adds. Uh, five or represents five percent of the eventual sale value, uh, and so a company will say, "Okay, in that case, you know, when I calculate the profit for my local company, it's going to be five percent of everything that was sold." Now, the company's overall profit margin on that product might be forty percent, and so you can see the gap there. If that's the case, then you know, only five percent of the value of the products being sold is is under these rules, these conventions available for taxation, whereas the rest is all going back to the headquarters company, that may feel unfair to the local uh, uh, country. And so the country that's only getting five cents says, no, 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 I, I actually think you know the value add of all of the marketing and the stuff you do here is 15%. I'd like 15% of the, profit, uh, of the revenue rather than 5% to stay in the country. And this is the stuff of, of argumentation between tax professionals and finance ministries, again, to see if they can reach some kind of agreement to say, look, is it 5%? Is it 10%? Do they split the difference? You know, and agree it's 7.5%. So, so they have these conversations going on all the time. And the idea is, 
ultimately to be fair to both countries. Um, you can't just have the country that wants the high you know, local percentage setting the rules because that's unfair to the headquarters country. Equally, as I say, the headquarters country is incentivized to keep that number down as low as possible. But what you're trying to do and what tax professionals try and do is reach an objective standard to say, like for, for each kind of activity, this is how much value add there is, and therefore this is how much of the revenue and profit should be booked in a particular country. And to be absolutely clear, that work today is done internally by the companies themselves. They don't have, well, they have, a, they have an external yardstick in the sense that there are conventions and standards and there are ways and mechanisms to calculate this, but it's the guidance is not strict. It doesn't give you the percentages. It doesn't even give you the, the ballpark percentages, but it's something that companies uh, are, are forced to do themselves today, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and again, it, it isn't um, as, as simplifying it, but I think not not excessively to say that often they say the dispute is a tax authority will come and say it's almost literally that fifteen percent companies as five they negotiate till they get to ten. So it's just like it's almost like a business negotiation where where you're in an area that isn't very clearly defined. In some areas, it is. And again, we should be really clear: this is not. Uh, confined to tech companies this is this is all kinds of businesses have, have had to do this for years and so it'd be the same if you if you you know manufactured like pharmaceuticals and you've got to work out how much of the value oh, luxury of the, goods you know, luxury or goods, anything yeah. else right? yeah, yeah how, how much was the the trademark of a luxury good worth because the, there's going to be a license fee that the luxury goods company charges and, and it's going to take money back for this license fee and take that out of the value of the goods locally. Uh, car manufacturing, you know, whatever you're, you're making uh, that involves some sort of clever stuff at the center, there's going to be some kind of fee um, often set up through some kind of licensing company, um, typically optimized for tax. And that fee uh, again, could be challenged by a tax authority. They can they can say, look, you're just taking too much out. Um, we want you to leave more uh, back in the country, you know, back in the country for us to tax, uh, because you, you essentially by taking that fee out, you reduce the amount of profit that's being made locally. Um, so all of this stuff is a, is a is a classic area of negotiation that takes place between tax authorities and businesses in all sectors. With the ultimate goal being to try and be fair to both importing and exporting countries so they each get a fair slice of the taxable profits at the end of the day. And now let's get back to tax competition, because the great big question then, of course, becomes if you are able to create value in one country, say the US, and then you go to another region, say Europe, you can pick and choose between all of the different European uh, member states, and you can argue that you're going to headquarter there, which means that when you start making this calculation, this transfer pricing calculation, a lot more value will be accrued in the new um, country of, of establishment where you're sort of, you're saying, this is where my European base is, uh, or your Asian base, or whatever it may be. So that means that we end up in this problem where if there are different tax rates, a rational actor would probably say, well, I'm going to try to make sure to apportion the most value I can to a tax regime that I think seems reasonable. 
And if there are different tax rates, what you get is something called tax competitions. States compete on the tax rates that they offer. And not only on the tax rates, and this is this is important because almost all states have some kind of incentive program where they say that if you come to us, we will we will give you a tax break for all of the investments you make, or we will give you a, uh, a specific tax um, program that can work for a couple of years, according to which you will be taxed uh, in a in a perhaps less uh, intrusive way uh, for three or five years uh, before you, when you establish your company, because you want to attract, they want to attract the foreign direct investment. So you have tax competition through tax rates and through tax incentives. So uh, on the other side of this debate, where you know we started out with all of the countries saying, oh, the companies aren't paying their fair share. The other side of this debate, we have all the countries competing to attract those same companies and do so with lower tax rates and tax incentives. How, how does this how does this fit together? Uh, I mean, you, the EU is such a sort of ins- instructive example, because when, when you think about it, if uh, somebody is coming from outside of the EU and selling into the EU single market, you're right, they'll establish in one country, but they're basically selling the same product to everybody in the EU and EU member states may have different tax local tax rates but but in theory whatever tax is being raised should be divided up pretty much equally across the EU um, it should be allocated to each country and instead it, it tends to be allocated to one uh, headquarters country at the moment you're right and that incentivizes tax competition and there's a, a long-standing debate around Ireland in particular and some other countries like the Netherlands come into it, but Ireland is seen as you know, a country that um, benefits from that tax competition and, and uh, sustains a low tax rate. Um, but in theory, whether or not you're established in Ireland, the rational thing for the EU is you look at how much profit a company makes in the EU as a whole, and then you divide that up uh, to be taxed by each EU member state. And there has been a long-standing discussion within the EU about doing precisely this. But what's Common really interesting... consolidated corporate, corporate tax base. Tax base. But they fail to agree it, and and that. Actually, and why is that? Why is that? Well, why do they fail? Again, I mean, it, it, there's winners and losers. There's always going to be winners and losers in in any kind of tax regime, and people are comfortable with the status quo. And so you imagine, common corporate tax base would say, look, um, some countries, I guess, that are sort of large importers of goods and services from other countries, uh, um, may end up winning. <laughs> Because uh, they they did they're not getting the corporate tax revenue. The companies are not based in their uh, country, uh, but now they're going to get the tax revenue because they're large consumers of those products. And then countries that are large exporters, Ireland would be the example at the moment, are going to end up losing. And so people don't want to. They don't like the sudden change. They're okay with incremental change, but not sudden change. I think that's what's been holding them back. But we should talk to some EU politicians about that. But, but we, we should. But there's another aspect yeah. here that I've heard in the debates, and, and it might be a Scandinavian peculiarity, and that is that the European Union actually doesn't really have that broad of a tax mandate. Currently. No, no, that's right. And, and guaranteeing it the ability to do what you're describing would essentially be at least in in a sort of a, a simplified way, federalization of the European tax system, and I think that there is a lot of people who who also feel reluctant to take that step, and that's it doesn't have to be winners or losers. It's about handing over competence to the European level 
where you're worried that that might in some way impinge on your ability to tax going forward. Many Scandinavian countries, for example, might worry that they would have to tax less yes, <laughs> and, and not be able to keep up their welfare states at the level that they currently have them, whereas many other countries might worry that they uh, would have to tax more. But that that sort of transference of competence seems to be at, at least a li- small part, I think. No, of the no, I think you're right. The competence isn't there, but I, I guess I was sort of um, curious as to why EU member states who who frequently complain about international tax structures are not willing to take that step, even within such tight a club as the EU. And I've seen that as, as sort of quite a negative indicator for the success of OECD. I think, again, until these recent moves by the United States. Which, um, yeah. uh, because if, if, if even a club like the EU can't come to common arrangements for essentially sharing out corporate tax revenue, which is what all these proposals are about, it, it didn't bode well for a broader international community being able to do that. And they've been around for decades, these proposals. Yeah. This is not something that came up with the tech industry even. It's, it's been around for decades as uh, the European Union has realized that the international taxation needs to be reformed. But consistently, as you say, um, not achieved full success. Yeah. And, and then I think the really interesting formula, and, th- and this is the bit we've got to look for. So if we look at the Biden proposals, part of it is saying let's all get a level playing field or you know, get get our corporate tax rates similar so that we take away the incentives for this profit shifting uh, sort of idea or these sort of international structures makes perfect sense. But the second part uh, that needs to be addressed, which I think is in many sense going to be harder, it is this question of profit allocation. And crucially, it, it, you know, the buying proposals are, are about making sure there's sufficient revenue to deal with the COVID fallout for the United States government. So this sort of equalization they see as a revenue gainer. But is the United States going to be willing to agree to formulae that mean that more of the profits of the Googles and Facebooks of this world will end up being taxed in other countries? And if so, what are they going to ask in return from other countries? Uh, Are they going to want to tax more of the profits of countries that sell of companies that sell into the US. And that's where we'll get to the really crunchy stuff in this debate. Um, uh, uh, any new formulae. So, so it's one thing to say we agree in principle that you know the economic activity should be taxed in more countries. It's quite another to to end up signing on the dotted line and saying, okay, the new formula is France gets three percent of Google's profits or gets to be able to tax 3% of Google's profits, the United States will only tax 50%, the UK will get 6% and you know, so on. And that, again, interesting to see whether uh, the United States really is committed to that. Um, but that is the long-term sort of solution that would get us to the place we talked about earlier, where the companies are no longer in the firing line. Uh, we actually now have an international structure. And if you think you're getting too small a share, the answer is to go back and renegotiate, literally renegotiate how those uh, shares are divided up between the different countries with other governments, not with the companies. Before we get our listeners too excited for the solution, we should mention that it's a part of a long-running discussion within the G20 and the OECD um, that was based on what was once referred to as the BEPS project, the Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project. And uh, it's not as if um, this is the first time it's being discussed either, but there are a couple of decades of discussions here that seem to be coming to an head. And I think you're right, Richard. I mean, it's really interesting to see how the Biden administration is approaching this. And uh, if I was 
was a betting man, I'd say, you know, you have a three, four or 5% increase in the probability that something will happen. But it's not more. It's not a 50% increase that we'll get a global taxation solution. It's less than that. And uh, the glaring um, problem, or I think challenge is that the OECD and the G20 doesn't represent all markets. So you have some pretty big markets out there that are not necessarily going to be included in this. And if you want to have a real international agreement, you probably need to have an international treaty organization and a solution that's much broader than what can currently be accommodated within the discussions that we are seeing on on the on the tax arena. Uh, that said, though, I do believe that this is this these are exciting times yes. and. Uh, and certainly is something that uh, is worthwhile following. And I, I think that all of our former colleagues are probably uh, very much leaning forward and, and reading up on everything that's coming out of the Biden administration right now. One, uh, is there something else? When we wrap this up, we started out talking about why tax is important, how it's um, the fair share notion, the notion of morals, the notion of contributing back to the society that enable you to profit from your economic activity. Uh, is there something, how would you like to sort of wrap this up um, to think about the long-term future? So I, um, I think long-term, really, we should be focused on, on I think, getting these or, or um, having a common agreement around what fairness looks like. And I think we should get that debate out. So, so whether or not we end up with government signing on the dotted line, I think you're right, is is a big question mark because signing on the dotted line may mean giving stuff up uh, and being unpopular, and governments don't like that. But I think a common, if we can even develop a sort of common language to say, you know, when when you create a tech product we all understand that this is the kind of amount of value that should be associated with the software engineering and the creation. This is the kind of amount of value that should be associated with the marketing and sales. This is the sort of amount that should be associated with the data, which is the other element we haven't discussed but often comes up, like what value is in the data. I just think if we could have that shared understanding, then we would know what we think FAIR looks like as commentators in this space or as people working in this space. Because people People in companies, and you must have experienced this, often feel very uncomfortable. They're, they're, they're asking the question, are we the baddies? You know, are we doing this wrong? Um, well, seeking clarity more than clarity, anything. Yeah. I think, I think the, 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 the frustration repeatedly expressed, and I think even written in an op-ed in 2013 by Eric Schmidt, was that give us the rules, give us the clarity, give us the, the, the sort of percentages, and we'll pay them. As long as they're not discriminatory, doesn't tax us twice, and uh, doesn't sort of take any industry and uh, extract value from that industry punitively, then we're good. Yeah. But it's still, but you're right. it's, it's still very opaque. It's a, a, to borrow from another area, uh, we really need taxation algorithmic transparency. <laughs> we need yes. we need to know how the tax... I mean, we just had this discussion today about transfer pricing and these negotiations. I bet most of the people who are out there who who um, follow the news and tech companies are, so have, have very little uh, um, insight into those kind of conversations, what's happening. So, And this, uh, this I think, is the, the other long-term thing that's really important that you're, that you're putting your finger on now is, is that as we increase the digitization 
digitization of tax and revenue services, as we increase the digitization of the economy, more and more of this stuff will logistically be accessible and transparent in a very different way than it's been historical. Or historically, I mean, one of the great pro- one of the great improvements in many taxation systems is actually just by using technology for compliance and making sure that it's really easy to comply with the taxes that exist. And that might reduce your losses and increase your tax revenues quite massively in some economies. Uh, currently in Sweden, and my American uh, colleagues tend to <laughs> tend to uh, shudder when they hear this, uh, we do our taxes with an SMS. We get from the state, here's what you're supposed to pay. We've listed all of your income. We know exactly which accounts you have because there's full transparency between the banks and the revenue service. Uh, here's what you end up doing. Do you agree? SMS yes to this number and then you did your taxes. That's it. That's essentially it. That should be the long-term endpoint of a lot more taxation than what happens today. So maybe the problem doesn't go away through international treaties as much as through an improved logistics, where the, the actual revenue streams and the economy becomes more transparent and more taxable as it moves into the digital space. Certainly. I think that uh, I, I like that. I, I'm about to, after this podcast, go and start working on my tax return because, of course, the British tax year peculiarly finishes on the 5th of April, not on any particular uh, fixed date in the year. It's not a calendar year, it's just a magic number. Um, I wish I could do them with a simple SMS. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Well, th- on that note, uh, until the rest of the world can do their taxes with SMSs, and uh, I really feel the local patriotism is strong, <laughs> uh, and, um, we, uh, we would welcome, as always, your thoughts, your ideas, your comments on this episode. And uh, this was one of our subject-oriented episodes. Uh, we'll soon get back to some of them that are oriented towards craft. And uh, if you want to prepare already uh, for next week's episode, what you can do is that you can pick up and I think they're open source or creative commons versions of this you can pick up Lawrence Lessig's code and other laws of cyberspace we will reread this classic of tech policy and we will discuss it next week in our upcoming session for the podcast the name of which is regulate.tech exactly thank you so much for listening and have a great week <laughs>